This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to the Books in South Asian Studies, about an hour-long discussion with an author about her or his latest book. Today we're talking about Real World and Anthropology of Creation, published by Duke University Press in 2015 and written by Anand Pandian. Anand is a professor of anthropology at John Hopkins. Now, do we live in a real world or a real world in which life begins to feel like a film? In this wonderful ethnography of the Tamil film industry, Anand explores such topics as grand and rich and timeless as those explored in film itself. Love, desire, rhythm, wonder. And he does so as a way of unpacking what it means to be creative. And in doing so, it takes its readers from the deserts of the Middle East and the mountains of Europe to India's archaeological sites and its less trodden city streets. And the book is really striking in its bold and writing choices, and we'll speak about this. It's, it's occasionally laugh-out-loud funny in the way it's really ethnographically honest. It really is a truly original and engaging study, and it speaks to topics and films way beyond the Tamil film industry. I had the pleasure of speaking with Anand just a few moments before. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Anand to the show. Um, let's dive straight into talking about your book, which is called Real World, really spelt R-E-E-L on the front of your book. So I was wondering, how is uh, our real world, spelt in the normal way, like a, like a real world? And how does Tamil film help us understand this? Thank you very much, Ian, first of all, for having me on the show and giving me this chance to talk about this book that I've been working on for the last few years. In answer to your question, the genesis of the book really goes back to the fieldwork I was doing for my first book, uh, Crooked Stocks, which was published a few years back and which grew out of my uh, dissertation fieldwork in a rural part of uh, Tamil Nadu in South India. When I was doing the research for that book, I was struck by the extent to which the ordinary rural people that I got to know very well, the farmers, irrigators, shepherds, and rural laborers that I was working with, made recourse so often to cinema, to bits and pieces of cinema, the cinematic fragments as means of making sense of their own lives. To give one example, and in fact, the example with which the book itself begins, uh, one morning I had gone off to the uh, agricultural area south of the village proper to meet a farmer who was at work on a field that morning, and he had invited me to spend the day with him. And when he saw me coming from a distance, he stopped what he was doing and stood up and addressed me with a few lines from a film song, which struck me as 
kind of interesting and funny to begin with, but then actually quite profound when I stopped to think about the fact that the film song that he was invoking was itself set in an agricultural field. And the film itself was set in a village very similar to this one. And that brought home to me in a rather uh, profound way, a kind of recursivity between cinema and ordinary life, the possibility that many people here uh, might be experiencing their lives and their environments as if they were already cinematic environments and cinematic scenes. And I began to kind of think or ask myself what is at stake in that kind of recursivity between cinema and life. And those questions eventually took me to the uh, studios and other production environments of urban South India and the city of Chennai, where uh, I did most of the research for this book and where most of these films are made uh, as a way of trying to unravel this question of how exactly it is that uh, cinematic experience gets constituted, gets produced and made in such a manner that it can slip so seamlessly into the fabric and texture of ordinary life. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So we're going to talk um, about some of the chapters of this book. I mean, when I open this book, uh, first thing I do when I get the book for the post for this podcast and I look at the contents and say, oh, yeah, what, what sort of chapters am I going to read about? This book struck me because it has 19 chapters, which is a shock for a, an academic book. And they all have wonderful titles, very grand titles, you know, dreams, hope, space, art, love, desire, light, and so on. So, um, and they really are a, a wonderful read, sort of very short, intense chapters, but also very expansive. So I'm just going to shoot a few questions at you of various different chapters of the book, and let's, and let's see where that conversation goes. So sure. my, my first question about this is, how are films like a dream? Right. Well, I should just say before I answer that very interesting question that the, uh, the really interesting thing about cinema is that it is both very specific and very grand. That is to say, any given film may give you access to a particular story set in a particular place, and yet the questions that are at stake in that film, the forms of experience that are at stake in that film may in fact be universal. And that particular way in which cinema moves between very specific and uh, rather, uh, as, as you put it, grand uh, scales of uh, inquiry or consideration is something that cinema shares with anthropology, the field that I come from, because we too uh, spend our uh, energies, devote our energies and our attentions to examining what is happening in very, very concrete circumstances, but always with an eye uh, to uh, the really the kind of universes of human possibility that that such attention can open up. So uh, the book is it, it moves between these scales with an eye to the kinds of anthropological insights about contemporary experience that might grow out of paying close attention to very, very concrete uh, scenes of filmmaking such as this one. The chapter on dreams that you brought up just now grows out of fieldwork that I did with, uh, with, a, with, a, with a team of filmmakers, with a director and his assistants, who were at that time trying to write their next film, trying to, uh, to, to script uh, the the storyline for their next film, and uh, it's it, it, the chapters all uh, pick up different 
parts of the production process as a way of broaching uh, questions around themes such as, as you say, uh, uh, dreams and desire and imagination and so on. And uh, this particular chapter is one of the early chapters that tries to say something about uh, the process by means of which uh, films get written in this part of India. And what struck me was the deeply, say, uh, unconscious way in which this writing process unfolded. That is to say, the process of writing could not be uh, described very accurately as a deliberative and purely volitional act of making words or images come. There was this sense of needing to wait for the images to come, the sense of needing to wait for uh, different uh, forms of uh, of dialogue and scene to suggest themselves to the filmmakers, which is to say that the very process of writing involved a kind of slipping into collective reverie on the part of the filmmakers themselves, which is something that I saw and tried to document in that chapter. But Interestingly enough, the form of reverie that they entered into as filmmakers seemed quite resonant to me with the form of reverie that films themselves can induce so often in putting us in, as viewers or as auditors into states somewhere between conscious and unconscious uh, attention. And so in this case, as with most other chapters or perhaps with every other chapter in the book, the, uh, there's a sort of formal symmetry between uh, the way that cinema is seen to work and the process by means of which its emergence unfolds. Now, um, as, as we know, like, and as you mentioned in the book, and I think it's even mentioned in the, in the foreword as well, that most Tamil films, like most films everywhere, flop. And yet people keep making them. Why? Right. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is, of course, one of the great uh, mysteries that uh, animates a lot of the thinking around the industry that was certainly on my mind as I was diving so deeply into this one. The foreword uh, by Walter Murch, a very well-known American film editor and sound designer, is, is quite, I think, incisive and illuminating around these questions, because what uh, what Walter does in those remarks of his is to um, is to dwell on the place of uh, of chance and of a kind of open ended aspiration as it motivates the process of filmmaking. That is to say, uh, filmmaking involves uh, a kind of and 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 here I'm speaking now not only of Indian cinema but also of say, Western cinema, as Walter gives it to us in his comparative reflections in the foreword, cinema involves us in a certain kind of wager on the contingencies of the world, a gamble that circumstances will come together in such a fashion that the right shot can be taken, that the right sound can be captured, that the right uh, uh, concatenation of uh, of uh, of uh, scenes will come together. That, that that the process itself depends upon uh, a, a certain kind of faith in the um, the creative potential of circumstances beyond our control. I think that filmmakers work with that 
faith. I think it runs through and is generative of the very process of making film. Uh, and uh, there is something about the momentum of those aspirations that seems to supersede uh, the eventuality that most of these films will, in fact, uh, fail. Uh, but, you know, but if one is to sort of make sense of that, I suppose we might even ask ourselves how many of our endeavors more generally <laughs> as beings actually bear fruit to begin with. Are we not always at the mercy of fates and chance events in that manner anyway? Is it not perhaps even a symptom of a certain kind of uh, modernist imagination to actually assume the opposite. That is to say that intentions will actually uh, be realized to begin with. Mm -hmm. If you understand what I'm saying, yeah. uh, perhaps this is in fact uh, the way things generally work and what we have to reconcile, reconcile ourselves with as, uh, as, as human agents in a world that is always uh, pulling ever away from our desire to kind of control and restrain and direct what it does. Mm -hmm. But uh, having said that, I do hope that this particular endeavor, this book, nevertheless, is a is not a flop and is a success because it is a real creative, creatively written book and a and a really wonderful read. For instance, there's one chapter that doesn't use any full stops, and another one, such as the one on time, that puts the the, the happenings of the film parallel on a page with its real time creation. So I was wondering what made you want to be so creative with the form, with your writing? And maybe a sub-question to this is, uh, and it's half serious, how did you get an academic publisher to agree to it? <laughs> well, I do have the good fortune uh, to, uh, to have worked on uh, this book with, uh, you know, with, a, with, with a wonderful publisher, Duke University Press, and with a wonderful editor, uh, Ken Whistaker, that I have actually collaborated with before. And we, have a, we have a relationship, and that relationship is in fact founded in part on the, uh, the commitment of that particular publisher and, uh, and, and their editorial staff to actually make space for uh, experimental and unconventional work in the academic world. I think that Duke University Press has actually pioneered a lot of, um, or supported pioneering efforts in more creative and experimental forms of writing, not only in anthropology, but in many other disciplines as well. Uh, and, uh, and, and I was actually really lucky in that uh, not only on the editorial side, but even uh, with regard to the design of the book, uh, people at the press were willing to try uh, to sort of uh, uh, try to understand my conception and to and to actually give uh, give back pieces of uh, uh, faces of it in the physical form of the book that I could not have anticipated myself. So to put this most concretely, the book is written as uh, as a montage the book itself is written in the form of a montage of scenes so as you mentioned there are 19 individual chapters but each of those chapters is for the most part structured as a montage of a number of uh, uh, of individual scenes or images and and uh, the uh, the people at the press not only appreciated that, but actually helped to design the layout of the book in such a manner that underscores that it unfolds, uh, in fact, as a series of images. Uh, the impetus for writing this fashion had to do, I suppose, more than anything else 
with the sense that if I was endeavoring here to write about a creative process, if I was endeavoring here to write about a creative process that involved the generation of captivating sounds and images, could I do this in a fashion, frankly, that would not be deadening? That is to say, could I do this in a fashion that would not be boring and more to the point that would not, in a sense, stifle the affects and energies and intensities that were at work in the material that I was trying to make sense of. It struck me that if I were to really do justice to the material that I had and the circumstances I was trying to make sense of as an ethnographer, that I owed it to my interlocutors and their work to try to allow the distinction between form and content to break down a bit, to allow the material to act on, not only on me as a thinker or an ethnographer, but also on me as a writer and to infiltrate and maybe even contaminate my own language of description. And so chapter by chapter, what the book Uh, it's not that the book tries to be experimental, but the book allows uh, the energies of its materials chapter by chapter to creep into the form and voice with which it is written. Uh, In that one chapter on desire, I was trying to say something about uh, a production process that was completely out of control. The whole thing was, was charged with this very, very intense um, emotional, even uh, uh, sexual energy that had to do with a kind of love triangle, triangle that was uh, uh, that was being um, uh, uh, dramatized uh, by the shoot itself, as well as by the story that the film was telling. And it struck me that uh, that that energy had something to say about desire, about the idea of, uh, of, of, of desire as a, as a machine that puts into, uh, into, into motion forms of flow and stoppage, but that to really convey that, I had to find the right form in which to show uh, as, um, as, uh, as effectively as possible the way that circumstances like these work on desire and uh it 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 struck me from reading that i was doing on the side i was always reading uh works of fiction actually of various kinds as as i was writing this book and and i stumbled across this novella by uh by the czech writer uh bohemil hrabel uh called dancing lessons for the advanced in age which is the entire novella of 120 pages was written as a single sentence without any full stops and it struck me that there was something about that form that might allow me to dramatize, to enact, to embody the arguments around desire that the chapter was seeking to make. And so in each of these cases, the effort is to find a narrative form that allows for the fullest realization of not only the, uh, uh, the, the nature of the materials at stake in those chapters, but also the arguments I'm trying to make with regard to those materials. Mm-hmm. And I think it works wonderfully well. I read that particular chapter on desire on a very late at night when I couldn't sleep, and it was all dizzy in my head after after reading it. It was a real, I don't know, a real intense, a real intense rush. 
Ähm, Bad Dreams. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> Bad dreams. <laughs> but uh, this book is inspiring, I think, in many ways. But it's also given me a few films that I want to watch. And one of the a new film on my to watch list is um, it's a film called Quarter Cutting. And you discuss this a bit in one of the chapters. And I've seen a, a trailer for this on the website of your book, which is realworldbook.org, which I'd urge um, all the listeners to this podcast to check out because you can see you can see um, trailers of some of the films and some of the and some shots from from certain films in question. Um, but I was wondering, um, let's talk a little bit about color, like because um, I suppose naively we might think that some of the color choices that filmmakers make um, are, are made to represent something, but it's not quite so simple, is it? No, I, I well, I mean it, it, it. It may be. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it may be the case that with color choices, as with really any other uh, aesthetic choices that, uh, that we make, that artists make, that creators or designers of various kinds make, it may in fact be the case that there are symbolic resonances, uh, metaphorical associations that are at stake in the choice of uh, of one kind of uh, design element, one kind of feature or another. So I don't mean to sort of categorically exclude the possibility that such thoughts or calculations or conjectures are at stake in the design of, uh, of, of films such as these. Uh, but having said that, I think it's also important to underscore that materials like colors, uh, materials that bear properties like the uh, like colors do often act on us in ways that we can't always make sense of, and they produce effects that we can't always explain. Uh, at least prospectively, though retrospectively, we may be able to make sense of. Uh, how it is that they uh, had the effects that they had. So in in this particular chapter, uh, I am telling, uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about the cameraman in particular and the relationship between uh, uh, a cameraman and an editorial duo who are shooting uh, a kind of nighttime escapade through the city of Madras or Chennai. The entire film unfolds uh, over the course of a single night in which the protagonist of the film is desperate for uh, for a bottle of booze because he's on his way to Saudi Arabia to work and he's convinced that it will be years before he ever gets to drink again. And as it happens, uh, all the liquor stores in the city are shut that day. And, uh, and, and so this duo wander the city trying desperately to find uh, a single uh, a bottle of booze to consume before this uh, this trip the next morning to uh, uh, to the Middle East and um, you know and it's a very whimsical film it's a very lighthearted film there are no uh, heavy themes of of, of social uh, or political commentary that are um, that that motivate this particular film and 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 above and beyond that there is also the idiosyncrasy of the way that it was shot it was uh the the filmmakers uh were were convinced that uh that one of one of the um well they 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 wanted it to showcase the kind of quirky uh and um 
uh, unconventional side of uh, the cityscape at night. And uh, they thought that one way to do that would be to actually manipulate the color spectrum of, uh, of the, the filmic world itself. And so the entire film is, as, you, as, as you've probably seen from, from these glimpses, is, is, the entire film is orchestrated in such a manner that there is no blue. Uh, the entire film uh, unfolds in a world of saturated shades of red and green, which is, of course, completely bizarre. Uh, and, 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 and the directors themselves couldn't necessarily explain very well why it is that they wanted to, um, to exclude the color blue from the landscape of the film. And the chapter itself unfolds as uh, my own sort of quixotic effort to try to make sense of uh, why there is no blue in the film, which I'm actually in the end unable to do. And yet it is clear that over and above my inability to make sense of why there is no bill, no, there is no blue in the film. I am still able to, I think as an ethnographer to say certain things about what colors do in such films about the uh, affective charge that uh, that that colors of different kinds bear and and what it means then to be working with the, those potentials as filmmakers and 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 so here really the um the endeavor i mean of course it's not as though i couldn't have given an explanation in this particular chapter i could have i could have offered an interpretation of my own. I could have made sense of it myself as an analyst or a thinker outside the film. But part of the endeavor here is to sort of uh, unsettle the position from which such judgments can be made. Can we throw ourselves off as onlookers in such a manner that the forces at work in things like cinema may act on us as well and actually take our own thinking in unanticipated directions? That uh, that uh, desire that motivated so much of the writing of this book uh, led me to actually relinquish at times the desire to make sense of everything I was seeing, which is why this particular chapter unfolds the way that it does. In fact, in fact, this chapter, I mean, I, this chapter ends with me as a state of reverie, in a state of reverie, in another city in which I too am swamped by the colors that I find myself in the midst of. The question for me at some level is, what would happen if we allowed our own thinking to be contaminated more fully by, uh, such, by such effective qualities, properties, resonances, and effects? Could we actually learn to think differently in relation to the material substance of the worlds that we seek to understand as anthropologists and as scholars? I mean, the, the, like, like you say, the, the chapter does end on that reflection, but then it has one last line, which is maybe my only critique of, major critique of the book. It also contains a spoiler of that film, the very last line of that chapter. You tell us it. <laughs> <laughs> so it sort of spoiled, spoiled my future watching of the film. But, um, <laughs> but um, on, the, on, yeah, on this, like, for instance, you reflect on the fact that the, that the film stayed with you when you were in another city. And there's, we learn actually a lot also about you as an ethnographer, we learn that um, right. 
that somebody thinks you have sadistic eyes, you know, we learned that um, you don't always iron your shirt, you know, and we learned that, um, you know, your mum screams out in the cinema when, when something happens. Um, so I was wondering, could you, could you please tell us a little bit about, uh, about sure. your role and, uh, and sure. yeah, how, how it was to be able to. So, mm-hmm. so, so the, the, the basic, the, the basic, the crux of the matter is that when, so this the fieldwork for this book unfolded over many years, but the longest stint of fieldwork was an eight-month period in uh, 2009, in which myself and my wife, who is an art conservator and had a Fulbright at the time, uh, we both went to India together with, uh, with a young child. And uh, we both had leave, and, and we both had grants, and the idea was uh, for both of us uh, to take advantage of that window and to see what we could get done on our respective projects uh, at the same time in that city. And um, as it happened, one of the directors that I'd gotten to know, that in fact I was a fan of uh, in terms of his work, was just beginning a film at the, be- at the beginning of that longer period of fieldwork. And it struck me that if I could simply follow the making of that one particular film from beginning to end, it would be a sort of lovely narrative arc for this book that I was hoping to write, that uh, I might actually be able to say something about the process of cinematic creation by staying with a story and exploring it as deeply as possible over the span of many months from the conception of a film. Uh, to its release, unfortunately, as you've seen from the writing of the book, uh, the you know the the uh, sort of deep and constitutive uh, openness to accident that is um, Tamil cinema uh, confounded these mm. particular fantasies of mine, and 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 very soon after, I started working with this particular director. He actually invited me to join him as an assistant director. It was lovely. I mean, I mean, the, this idea that I would be able to help work on a film that then I could write about it was it was it was a profoundly exciting uh, fantasy when you think about the ideas of participant observation that anthropologists nurture. But uh, but of course, uh, very very soon after we had come to uh to this sort of um agreement about how we would work together the project itself completely fell apart because something better came along for him he decided to put this was this one on hold uh there was it was not clear how long it would take for it to get back uh into motion again i had a job back in the u.s my wife also had to come back we had this child you know how how could i possibly make it work and and in the end there was no way to make it work there was no way to wait uh for this film to kind of pick up again uh with the idea that i could simply stay with it uh, long enough to be uh, to be able to see that particular vision of the book through and and this was this was frankly rather crushing it was crushing uh because it was uh such a beautiful story uh in terms of the narrative arc of the book that i had in mind it was crushing because i i, I think he's a supremely talented filmmaker and i was actually really attached uh to uh to his films uh, those that I'd seen thus far, and 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 uh, more than that, he was also uh, you know a profoundly interested reader. And when he learned I was an anthropologist, he walked upstairs and came back down with two books from his library, and they were books by Marcel Mauss and Claude Levi Strauss. And this is someone who who knew anthropology. <laughs> so so when it fell apart that way, I was I was a little devastated. But of course, as an anthropologist who's worked on other books before, I I, I understood that that such uh, devastation 
variations are part of the game and, in fact, you know, constitutive of the fits and starts by means of which anthropological fieldwork unfolds as well. And so given that I had time in India, I was already there. I had to devise another plan uh, to actually get this uh, book, uh, to, to get the research for this book done. And, and eventually what, uh, what I decided to do was to rethink the project altogether and to actually write it as a, as a, as a, by, to actually focus it around short stints of fieldwork with a number of different film projects that would each open up different dimensions of the filmmaking process. So I spent a few weeks with, uh, with, with an editor who was uh, doing the final cut of one film. I, fent, I spent a couple weeks with uh, a, a composer who was uh, composing a song for a different film. I went, uh, I, I, I went to central India for a couple weeks with an actor who was learning uh, the, how to uh, sort of become this uh, 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 valiant action hero for another film. So, I mean, I, I basically, the, the process broke down uh, into different scenes and themes that were unfolding in relation to very different cinematic projects. And I, when I, all of that was sort of um, accomplished uh, over the course of a few years uh, of, of field work. Um, and when I turned to writing, what I realized is that uh, though, you know, ultimately in some ways the process was much more interesting, the research process, because I got to see a lot more and I got to see a much greater range of, of, of projects and circumstances than I would have otherwise if I just stayed with one. Uh, narratively, it was actually quite difficult, uh, the, the, the very first draft of the book, because it was really uh, jumping around so much from disparate scene to disparate scene. And the question of what held these different scenes together, what held these different stories together, uh, was actually quite a challenging problem. And a colleague of mine, who's actually a documentary filmmaker, uh, read uh, one of the early drafts of the book and uh, suggested to me that one resolution of that particular problem might be to simply uh, put myself into the story more as a central character. And that was the genesis of this particular strategy that you are referring to here. That is to say, what I fell back on as a strategy to pull the book together was to put myself as a bumbling ethnographer <laughs> into the chapter, kind of scene by scene, situation by situation, telling almost a kind of meta story about the unfolding of the research as a way of giving some greater narrative coherence to the book as a whole. Now, how well that's worked, I'm not sure, but that was the um, that was one of the uh, that, that was one of the motivating uh, factors in writing myself into the story to the extent that I have. It works for me usually. Like in uh, ethnographies, I'm I'm a little bit tired of how much ethnographers like to put themselves in stories. Like sometimes it's pointless, but here it felt, uh, it felt always right. It felt always, uh, felt always a nice balance. So that's good to hear. That's good. Yeah. I'm someone, I mean, I think people use it too much, right? But this is, but it works nicely, I believe. But let's, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about some of the early chapters. I, there's a, what was surprising for me is like the, the directors, the, the spaces in which they shot the film, um, really sort of inform the shoot, even when some of these spaces seem to be decided on a whim. You know, so I was wondering, 
maybe maybe this is a too abstract question, but how does space make film or how does space make filmic images? Right, right. Well, you know, we we, we are in the the midst of a boom in what people are now calling the environmental humanities scholars in the humanities and social sciences and disciplines as diverse as uh, literature and cinema studies and philosophy and history anthropology sociology ever so many disciplines uh, scholars over the last few years have really begun to confront in a profound and sustained way the extent to which the field of human agency to which we've restricted our attentions for the most part is really a much smaller constituent part of a, of a, of a much larger domain of worldly activity, vitality, agency, life that not only impinges on and limits what we can do as human beings, but also in many ways is constitutive of the very things that we claim for ourselves as active human agents in the world. This has been a profound lesson of, uh, of, of the new materialisms, of work in science studies, of environmental humanities, as I mentioned before, uh, a, a kind of revivified interest in all of those other worldly agents, beings, actors, forces, that whose collusion and collaboration and activity we in fact depend upon to realize whatever it is that we're after as as human beings um now we are coming to this perhaps rather belatedly there is of course a profound uh feeling in the zeitgeist at the moment of perhaps having realized too late that the world is much bigger than what we want as human beings and uh that mismatch between what we want and 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 the consequences of wanting what we want is such that the world is becoming a rather unhospitable place <clears throat> not only for many other creatures but also of course for many human beings and there's a lot of uh, anxiety around these uh these kinds of uh problems and impasses and tensions and contradictions at the moment. And one question that's on a lot of people's minds in very many ways is uh, the question of reconciliation. What would it take to find a way of conceiving of human agency, of human intentionality, of human action in the world in a manner that wouldn't be predicated upon the domination and containment and control and, and, uh, and uh, domestication of everything in the world that lies beyond ourselves. And here, I think, there's actually quite a lot to learn from practitioners in uh, creative endeavors such as cinema, who, even if they don't have the same kind of philosophical training that we do, who, even if they don't have the same kinds of environmental commitments that we do, who, even if they're not reading the same kind of criticism and fiction that we're reading, still on a very practical level and in a very everyday way 
are uh, involved in, enmeshed in precisely the kinds of accommodations and compromises that we are beginning to think of now as desirable, as scholars of the relationship between, say, uh, humanity and, uh, and the larger uh, environment. And, and that was one of the most profound lessons for me of this particular research process, to be in the middle of something, to find myself in the middle of something that one would imagine to be the apotheosis of human of, of, of a certain kind of uh, 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 controlling vision and, and, and to see that what we might uh, you know, tend to ascribe to uh, uh, the kind of uh, um, controlling vision of a certain kind of uh, creative genius instead involves an infinite number and degree of compromises with the forces at work in the world at hand and in a, a, everything from uh, the, um, the, the, the current of sound that one begins to intuit in a particular kind of place or the, um, the, uh, uh, the uh, capacities for uh, 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 visual expression that come from working with the, uh, the, the, the light at hand in a given environment and thinking about how to intensify it rather than erase it and begin from nothing. Or in the case of what you brought up earlier, thinking about the, um, the, the things that are already present in a space and, and, and the kind of, uh, activity that, uh, the, um, the, the kind of, um, active force they exert on that space and the question of whether or not one may be able to tap their, uh, uh, their forcefulness as a way of setting up the space of a film rather than, again, sort of clearing everything, beginning with the space as a tabula rasa and then putting in exactly what you want uh, uh, from a kind of degree zero standpoint. Like that particular chapter uh, takes place in an abandoned factory where the uh, the chapter on space, the one that you brought up, where an, an, a, another directorial team is trying to teach themselves how to shoot a film in this city for the first time. They have to learn themselves what it's like to convey something of the character of this city in the form of a film. And the way that they choose to do that is to put themselves on trial by shooting for a day in a space whose things were just there. And so I try to show then how, uh, in that particular chapter, how a certain kind of responsiveness to what is there motivates not only what happened that day, but also motivates, uh, say, a more affirmative relationship to the contingency of space, the wildness of space, its, uh, its, its agency beyond our uh, deliberate intentions uh, uh, that, that is at work in, in, in this particular process. Mm-hmm. This talk of agency, I think, segues nicely on to a discussion that you bring up in the very last chapter, and that's of fate. So I was wondering, does, do, do films have fate? Well, they, well, well, they, do, they do have fate, just as, uh, just as we have fate. Um, I, um, there was something that a farmer and then a, uh, someone who would... Who, pursued a vocation as a farmer for, for a long time and, and then wound up in, in his elder years running a tea stall in this village that I did my dissertation field work 
uh, in uh, some years ago. I was very moved by something that he told me once uh, in that village, uh, say about a decade ago. And he he was he was trying to make sense of the twists and turns of his life. He's uh, and it's it, I'm referring here to the character. Uh, at the heart of the epilogue to my first book, Crooked Stocks, which sort of centers on this dream that this one individual had. Anyway, he's trying to make sense of the twists and turns of his own fate. And, and he says something to me about how some of us are fated uh, to sort of uh, rise and fall in a single season, like a paddy plant. Others are fated to uh, live for. Uh, others are others. Others pursue deeds that are fated to have a life of many years, say, like a banana plant. And there's still others uh, whose deeds are fated to have an existence more akin to the palmyra palm, who uh, which is planted in one generation only to bear fruit two generations down the line. So there's this sense of the organic vicissitudes of fate as being sort of vastly different from each other and the question again of how one might reconcile oneself with the vagaries of a world uh, whose vicissitudes are so profoundly uh, beyond our reach and control that was an, uh, a kind of um, imagination of, uh, of fate that, uh, that, that I began to think about at that time and it remained with me even with this particular process precisely because the question of, uh, of a film's fate, of a scene's fate, something that you anticipate will produce laughter, but it instead produces silence, something you think will move people to tears, but instead moves them to laughter. All of these uncertainties that, uh, that, that uh, insinuate themselves into the breach between a filmmaker and an audience are things that the filmmakers had to think about, but that I also was trying to think about in this uh, endeavor to say something about the creative process. How can we understand uh, the generativity of this process, its capacity to make things like films and art and images and sounds and so on in such a manner that would take those vagaries and vicissitudes as constitutive of the very process of creation rather than as unfortunate afterthoughts that come after the fact. Can we imagine this openness as being uh, in some way deeply constitutive of the process itself? And that's what I try to show uh, with this particular book, that, that, that the creative process is one that folds into itself these vagaries and vicissitudes and indeterminacies of outcome rather than fighting them off uh, at the, uh, from the get-go. And, and this is, of course, something that we too, as creators, as writers, as thinkers, as teachers, have to think about as well, because we all give lectures that fall flat. We write books that fail to sell. Uh, we, uh, you know, we, we put forward ideas that don't catch hold of others' imaginations. These are uh, uncertainties of worldly life that we too have to confront. I suppose at some level, the very process of writing this book became an occasion to meditate on those uncertainties that we too find ourselves in the midst of in the creative work that we do and to ask them the question, are there ways of learning to work 
with those uncertainties in such a manner that might actually be productive of more interesting work rather than a whole lot of hand-wringing and frustration. And that, I suppose, is the spirit in which this particular book is written. Thanks so much for downloading the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about real world and anthropology of creation by Anand Pandian. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it, and I hope you're going to tune in again next time. Ta-ra!